0: The big takeaway then from if the last part of the board is Linfield, Wabash, Muhlenberg, Ithaca is that Case Western Reserve and Wittenberg never even get to the board in the north to get discussed. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com
1: Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Welcome to the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast as we get you in to Selection Weekend, get you ready for Selection Sunday. There's just 123 games standing between us and a selection show on a Sunday afternoon. There's 13 automatic bids standing between us and them. There's five at-large bids to be handed out. There's a Pool B bid to uh, be thrown in there as well, and Keith... This is the time of the year where there's not a lot of sleep going on around here at D3Football.com headquarters, and uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting things to talk about. I'm Pat Coleman, and a welcome-in co-host, Keith McMillan. Yeah,
0: I think so, because not only is it the playoffs and then the road to Shenandoah begins in uh, Saturday night, essentially, but we've got basically the best week of D3 football period because in addition to all the, the playoff intrigue, the conference championships that are on the line... There's a great week of rivalry games ahead. Some of the best rivalries in college football, not just in D3. Some of the best rivalry games will be played this week, and we'll discuss some of those later in the pod.
1: All the implications, all the scenarios, all of the speculation all come down into this kind of uh, 48-hour period, starting from whenever you listen to this podcast, So let's say you listen to it on Friday morning, which is when it drops. Then we have uh, all those games that go on. And then at the end of the night, Saturday night, before uh, any of us get to go to sleep, we're putting together our uh, our mock bracket, our bracket projections to see who we think of finally, once all the data is in, who we think are going to be in the field, who the at-large teams are. We'll try to project who you might play in the first round. Um, and, uh, you know, that will, of course, be formally announced At 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on a Sunday, you can get that uh, link to that uh, selection show here at D3Football.com. We'll have it all over the place for you. You will not be able to miss it, but, you know, Keith, typically at this time of the year, we do a mock bracket. And because this is also a year in which we started doing two podcasts in a week, it was like, I don't know when we're going to do a podcast and a mock bracket, so maybe we should just do a mock bracket
0: yeah, or at the very least we can uh, quickly run down who's in the thirteen automatic thirteen of the twenty six automatic bids have been earned at this point, there are thirteen more to go. and among those, there are some conferences such as the centennial where the front runner um, basically just needs to win on Saturday and they're in. and then there are the other ones such as the North coast where the uh, situations are a little more complicated. but, you know, quickly, who's who's in? Uh, Mary Harden-Baylor out of the American Southwest. Husson from the ECFC, Brockport in the Empire 8. RPI in the Liberty League. Trine in the MIAA. St. John's has earned the MIAC automatic bid. Whitworth uh, out of the Northwest. OAC, Mount Union. SAA, Berry. Skyak, Claremont, Mudscripts. UMAC, Martin Luther. Maryville has won the USA South, and UW-Whitewater has won the WIAC. That leaves 13 other conferences up for grabs.
1: Now, of course, in order to project who the at-large teams might be, we have to project who are going to win the rest of these 13 conferences. And as Keith mentioned, there are some conferences where the winner just has to continue or the leader just has to continue by winning on Saturday. For example, Johns Hopkins has to do that. North Central can do that. Franklin can do that against Hanover. Delaware Valley can clinch it out against Widener. And so we've uh, projected those teams to win in those situations. Uh, we projected Eureka to win the knack because they just have to beat Rockford. You know, Dennison is in a three-way tie with Wittenberg and Wabash, but I think we can project all three of those teams to win, and Dennison gets the uh, bid in the three-way split. It gets more complicated. If it doesn't happen that way, we might talk about some of those things later. We'll see. Uh, we project Frostburg to win the NJAC, and I know... They have a game this weekend. All of these teams have games this weekend, but we have to make a projection of some sort in order to make a reasonable at-large uh, projection guess. Project Randolph-Macon to win the ODAC. Woo-hoo! <laughs> project WJ to win the Pack, and uh, that is the, the last of our list. And then we don't project somebody to win the American Rivers because uh, Dubuque or Wartburg, no matter who wins there, it doesn't affect the at-large bid race. It doesn't really affect the seedings. It wouldn't affect bracketing if we took this all the way out to bracketing. Similarly, the Commonwealth Coast Conference, whether it ends up uh, being Endicott finishing off uh, everything against Salve Regina on Saturday or some other combination of things that happens, that doesn't really it doesn't really have an impact on the at-large race. Similarly with the MASCAC. Uh, Framingham State can finish things off after they beat Western Connecticut last week, and they can finish it off with a win. But again... If they don't win, it doesn't matter because they're not going to be a, a, an at-large participant. So what I thought was interesting, Keith, of course, is if, how do we then continue to project from here? Do we project, How do we project the Pool B scenario, for example? I, when Typically, when we do a mock projection at this point, we do not include these games that haven't yet been played. So I would put Thomas Moore in based on what the current criteria are. Yeah, but
0: I, I think if you if you want to look at it the other way, I think Thomas Moore has a very tough uh, game at St. John's on Saturday. And so as this thing uh, falls out, it may come down to MIT and Merchant Marine. Merchant Marine also has a pretty tough game against Coast Guard. Not only is it, is it a rivalry game, but Coast Guard is a six-win team so far this year. And MIT has a tough game against Springfield which is a uh, you know, just a shade behind them in the new Mac standing. So all three of those teams could lose. One Any number of combinations could take place in Pool B. So I think the smart thing to do, Pat, as you said, we'll just hang with who's atop the list now. But remember that when this actually all happens on Saturday, you may be dealing with any, any number of scenarios.
1: Keith, we had a fun conversation and then it spilled over into Twitter with you and Greg Thomas, uh, who is Wally Wabash on Twitter. That's our Bracketology guy. Remember, he was in our podcast. For those of you who are listeners, he was in our bonus podcast last week and he was going through the craziest of crazy scenarios. And there are some pretty crazy scenarios and possibilities out there.
0: Yeah, well, one of them is if all three of those Pool B teams lose, does Springfield then jump up and become the Pool B team? Because remember, Pool B is a bid that's set aside for teams that don't have access to automatic bids. And right now, that this season, that is the New Mac and Thomas Moore because they're the only independent. So one of those teams has to take it. And if all three of the teams in front right now, if they all lose on Saturday, you, you may see a situation where a team that right now we say has almost no playoff shot ends up being the team.
1: We will talk about some of those other crazy scenarios a little bit later in this podcast. But let's take a look at who the at-large teams would be then. Uh, This is a situation, too, where I don't think it matters so much. I know Keith might have a differing opinion on whether John Carroll beats Baldwin Wallace or Baldwin Wallace beats John Carroll. I think either way, the OAC runner-up gets in the field. Similarly... I don't think it matters for the purposes of this projection. If Bethel beats St. Thomas or St. Thomas beats Bethel, that team is going to get in the field. Um, And in all honesty, Keith, I suspect they might be the first two teams off the board.
0: Yeah. When, when I ran through this pretty quickly, I I put the blue streaks in first and the Tommies in second. Uh, You could go a different way if you project Baldwin Wallace or Bethel to win. I don't think Baldwin Wallace's case is quite as strong as John Carroll's. A couple reasons. One is um, that John Carroll's loss to Mountain Union was, was a much tighter game. They have a little bit better um, – they grade out better on some of the other criteria. Uh, they have a common result with Wabash so that they will remain ahead of them. Certain things like that I think maybe make them the first team in. This is what I think both of these two teams, though, are, are going to benefit from after Saturday. Whoever wins between John Carroll and Baldwin Wallace, whoever wins between Bethel and St. Thomas, that win on Saturday becomes a win over a regionally ranked opponent. I don't think any of those teams will fall completely out of the rankings, and therefore that'll give them a leg up on some teams like Harden-Simmons, Center, which may have uh, very strong strength of schedule but don't have wins over other teams in the regional rankings.
1: So at this point where we have put in a north region team and a west region team, our board, if you remember the discussion from six podcasts back with Jim Catanzaro, the uh, chair of the national committee, the head coach of Lake Forest, basically what they do is they have the top at large team from each region uh, lined up and slotted head to head against each other. So one east team, one north team one south team and one west team and we've already put in our top north and west candidates so our board would look like this we would have ithaca out of the east which is 7 and 2 with a
2: 541
1: sos in the north we would have I think presumably Wabash would be the next team up. Of course, we presume that they win their game against DePauw and that also they're not the automatic qualifier, but we've made that projection already. So Wabash, 8-1 uh, and one currently with a 481 SOS. We go down to the south region and the uh, top available team there is center at 8-1 and one with a 572 SOS. And then we go to the west where our next available team would presumably be Linfield. Which is six and one with an out of division loss and a 574 strength of schedule. And you know we always talk, of course, about the five primary criteria. Uh, of course, being uh, you know results against division three opponents, results against common opponents, division three strength of schedule, uh, results against regionally ranked teams, and head-to-head results. Did I say that twice, or is that the final one? Nope, that's the final one. And so those are the primary criteria, but there are secondary criteria as well. And by the time you get to the bottom of Pool C, everything we have been told in the past, not only in football but in other sports, is that you can't really ignore any game and you can't really ignore any data point. And Keith and I had an interesting discussion about this before we uh, turned on the recording device and looked at the thought, uh, my argument for... Linfield being considered as a two-loss team already by the committee is the fact that I think if Linfield was really looked at as a 6 and 1 team by the committee in this second regional ranking the one that came out on Wednesday then I would think that Linfield with a 574 SOS would have already been ahead of Bethel who is 8 and 1 with a 527 SOS. That's a that's a difference of 0. 0.047 which is usually something that the Committee considers significant. I just feel like if uh, that if Linfield were really truly considered a one loss team by the committee, they would already be ahead of Bethel, and they're not.
0: What I think is really interesting about that point you make, Pat, too, is if we are saying that Bethel or St. Thomas, whichever team wins on Saturday, is either the first or second team in, Linfield comes to the board in the third round. Let's say you have to make that determination really early. The the committee does whether they consider the secondary criteria for Linfield or whether they're considering them essentially a one loss team with a 570 something strength of schedule, in which case Linfield's chances are, are pretty good that you and I both agree that, that you, you do consider that, uh, that out of division loss and probably means that our board, uh, in round 3 we'll be discussing Linfield Wabash center and Ithaca at the same time. And, um, Basically, every Pool C team that's, that's got a legitimate shot has a very good strength of schedule, 500 or well above, except for, for Wabash. Nice work, Becky. So when you have this discussion, Linfield, Wabash, center, Ithaca, you got Ithaca, a two-loss team. You have Linfield, a two-loss team, if you're, if you're considering secondary criteria. Wabash with the sub-500 strength of schedule, and that gives center. A, a pretty strong uh, chance to get in
1: yeah I think if in if that's what the board looks like then center goes in and that's the third of our five at-large bids now uh, as the board moves up then center goes into the field and they are replaced by Harden Simmons Harden Simmons eight and one record with a 536 strength of schedule uh, Harden Simmons with a loss to the number one team in the south uh, Linfield and on the board from the West. They, their loss is to uh, the number three team in the West, also to a a five and five team or a four and five team from the NAIA, depending on whether our committee uh, cares that uh, one of those wins is by forfeit, which is a thing that doesn't happen in Division three or in the NCAA. Uh, then you've got Ithaca. We mentioned the seven and two. Their losses are to the number one and number three team in the regional rankings. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And so that's what that uh, stands at. And then uh, we're back to Wabash, whose loss is to somebody who's not regionally ranked currently, but they do have a win against North Region number 7. I guess that's one spot where Wabash has got a possibility of getting in in that they would be the only team with a win at this point against a team that's regionally ranked, but I don't know if uh, I don't know if that makes a difference. It makes enough of a difference because that strength of schedule is 481 and 55 points lower than say harden Simmons, the other true one-loss team on the board.
0: It really is going to put the the committee in in a spot where they have to make this decision bet- between what they value most. And the the good thing is they make that decision as we talked about with Linfield, they make it in the third round, and so this fourth round discussion. When you replace center with Harden-Simmons, it's essentially the same exact discussion. And if you decided that with center you value the strength of schedule more, even in the absence of a win over a regionally ranked opponent, then Harden-Simmons is the team that goes in in the fourth round because they have essentially the same profile.
1: So let's put Harden Simmons in in this speed mock that we're putting together right here, and then they will be replaced on the South Region board by Muhlenberg, who is eight and one with a 5.42 strength of schedule. Muhlenberg, uh, their loss is to Johns Hopkins, the South Region number three. They have a win, of course, against the South Region number nine, that is Thomas Moore, and that is uh, helpful to their candidacy as well. Now we have a team that's one that's got one loss. It's got a SOS that's ab- above. 500 by a significant margin and has a win against a regionally ranked team.
0: And that is a really big deal that win over Thomas Moore because then it makes it an even easier decision than it was with Harden, Simmons, in Center because those two teams didn't have a win over a regionally ranked opponent. If, for whatever reason, um, Thomas Moore loses at St. John's and they drop out of the regional rankings, the final ranking, right, where this is an important distinction to make, Pat, that yeah. there was at one point once ranked always ranked that is no longer the case.
1: Right. So if Thomas Moore is not in the final ranking that the committee puts together on a Saturday evening, then no longer will Mühlenberg get that particular benefit from it. They of course will still have a, a a strength of schedule advantage. And of course, you know, we are doing a projection that is if the season ended today. So note that of course, right, you know, we know Mühlenberg has a game left. Their strength of schedule will change. Right. They face Moravian, uh, their rival. So that will um, that'll mess with the numbers a little bit. There are all sorts of things that will happen on Saturday. But this is a uh, this is an exercise in, you know, what the what the field looks like today.
0: Yeah. And it's really tough to listen to this. It's, it's obviously a little easier to look at all the numbers in front of you. And so as you uh, are on the website this weekend, whether it's uh, on the message boards or uh, on your Pat, your official projection and, and that thing usually does. Uh, bonkers numbers on Saturday night and, and the interest is through the roof It's a lot easier to process the stuff when you're looking at all the numbers But in the interest of, of getting through this quickly, I think you do put uh, Muhlenberg in as the last team if your board is Linfield, Wabash, Muhlenberg, Ithaca, but you could make a case for just about every team on the board two interesting takeaways from that is that if that was our final board case Western Reserve and Wittenberg uh, even if they're both nine and one, they never even get discussed. Definitely. They don't have the strongest. They they are be, they are behind uh, John Carroll, Baldwin Wallace, and Wabash as we speak in the North Region rankings, and they will remain that way except for uh, whichever team loses between John Carroll and Baldwin Wallace. I think that's interesting. I think the other interesting thing is that we've we've said Ithaca is going to beat Cortland in the Cortica Jug game, if Cortland somehow remains. Uh, regionally ranked after that that will give Ithaca a one and two record Mm -hmm. against regionally ranked opponents because they they also played RPI uh, lost that game 10 to 9 they lost 13-6 to Brockport so they have more games against regionally ranked opponents than anyone else and that could get Ithaca as a two-loss team discussed in a way that other two-loss teams won't
1: I really liked the uh, list of uh, I don't know doomsday scenarios. Is now what I am thinking about uh, calling this group of things from Greg Thomas. So let's uh, let's talk through a couple of these just for the heck of it because these are things that could possibly happen. Uh, let's see here is a here is a East Region ish one. Widener defeats Delaware Valley, which gives Misericordia, assuming misery wins on Saturday, a uh, the automatic bid out of the MAC. Uh, Frostburg loses to Salisbury. Frostburg, if they lose on Saturday, would probably get a Pool C bid, so that bumps one of these teams that we just talked about probably out of the field. Uh, Thomas Moore wins at St. John's, and that would be uh, a spot that gives Thomas Moore a Pool B bid and maybe puts you know MIT or Merchant Marine as a possibility for a Pool C, but of course they're stuck behind Ithaca. Just imagine, though, imagine Widener defeating Delaware Valley. That's not too much of a stretch. And Misericordia going from, you know, the the five wins or whatever that they've had in the history of their program to getting into the NCAA playoffs. You know, that would be
0: obviously the story of, of the first round or the story of Saturday, among many stories on Saturday. But in addition to that scenario, if Cortland beats Ithaca, how high does uh, Merchant Marine go in the East Region rankings? Do they, the, right now, they're ahead of Cor- of Cortland. Now, would that change if Cortland has the win over Ithaca? Who knows? But remember, one of these teams has got to get in by pool B, either MIT, Merchant Marine, Thomas Moore, or someone further down the list. So if, say, MIT, which has the head-to-head over Merchant Marine, if they get in, then you have uh, maybe Merchant Marine is the top team in the East. And that whole uh, speed mock that we just did has Merchant Marine as the team on the board instead of Ithaca.
1: How about this out of the West Region? The possibility that St. Thomas beats Bethel on Saturday and doesn't jump over Linfield. It does look like St. Thomas's strength of schedule is not going to rise as high as Linfield's is, but this is a presumption, I think, that, uh, that uh, Linfield is treated as a one-loss team, which I'm not necessarily uh, convinced is going to happen. But otherwise, that's a very intriguing possibility. What if St. Thomas wins, bumps Bethel down, and then Linfield is the top team on the board in the West Region? Does Linfield act as a blocker for everybody else?
0: Well, in that case, it would. But what doesn't make sense there is, again, St. Thomas earns the win over a regionally ranked opponent by beating Bethel. That's something that Linfield doesn't have in its profile. So I think they would have to leap over them.
1: Here's a possibility out of the South. How about Barry losing to Trinity? which would pull them possibly down below Muhlenberg in the rankings, might drag center down with them, which could put Harden-Simmons and Muhlenberg into the field. Here's a thing, too. It's not, of course, that uh, Harden-Simmons and Barry are not going to be going against each other, but Harden-Simmons would have uh, a win against Trinity and Barry would not. But, of course, center has a win against Trinity and Harden-Simmons has a win against Trinity. That's a common opponent that we kind of discussed a little bit last week that, again, the committee doesn't seem like it has really put any meaning on center versus Harmon Simmons, but Barry losing to Trinity is not out of the realm of possibility.
0: No, I I think there are some crazy things like that that could happen that aren't super crazy. And they, and the, the crazy part about that you mentioned, Pat is that drags center down. And if it drags center down in such a tightly grouped bunch, when you look at the profile of center, Harden Simmons, Muhlenberg, all very similar, if for whatever reason, Center is now not as highly ranked. That could take them from in the field in the third round of discussion to maybe being discussed at the very end. And and you want to be on the board for as many times as possible uh, to get discussed so you have many chances to get in.
1: The North Region one is pretty, uh, is pretty interesting. Because we have that three-way tie at the top of the uh, North Coast Athletic Conference, if one of those teams loses, then we no longer have a three-way tie, of course, and we just have a two-way tie that's broken by the head-to-head. So let's think, perhaps, that Wabash loses to DePauw in the Monon Bell game. That gives the North Coast automatic bid to Wittenberg. Hanover beats Franklin and knocks Franklin out of the regional rankings and out of the playoffs, creating a situation perhaps where maybe Washington University gets into the North Region rankings. Follow all the dominoes here as they fall. Now Wheaton is 2-2 two and two against regionally ranked opponents, and they jump all the way up to perhaps be ahead of the, uh, the, the, uh, the loser of the John Carroll Baldwin-Wallace game, to be the uh, second in line from the Pool C, and to be on the board for a long time and maybe even get in at that point?
0: I, I think things like that, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time with the two loss teams, but Ithaca has a pretty strong two loss profile. Cortland could as well. And then all the CCIW teams, assuming, of course, that North Central beats Milliken on Saturday. Then you have Illinois Wesleyan, Wheaton, and WashU that all factor into this in some way or another.
1: That is an assumption that uh, we have made, but of course might not necessarily happen. We should take a uh, quick look and a reminder at uh, who of uh, who these teams play. Denison plays Kenyon, and Kenyon is winless. So Denison, uh, you would think that would be in a position to continue and win out. Wittenberg finishes the season at Worcester, and of course, uh, uh, Wabash faces DePauw. Looking at the South Region for a second, Johns Hopkins, of course, finishes the season at home against McDaniel, as I think they have for like as long as I can remember. Harden-Simmons finishes with uh, McMurray, its crosstown rival, and uh, center finishes the season at Birmingham Southern. And we mentioned that Muhlenberg is playing Moravian. Uh, Let's see, Franklin's playing Hanover. Of course, there's an automatic bid on the line there. Uh, Illinois Wesleyan, if we go that far down, they are playing at North Park. You'd think they'd be in a good position to finish things off. Um, Gosh, you know, uh, in the pack, uh, Washington and Jefferson, finishes the season with Waynesburg. I'm not sure Waynesburg is a gimme. They're playing fairly well this year. Case Western Reserve home against Carnegie Mellon. That's another place where at least the bid could change hands. W&J and Case are tied for first. And if uh, they finish tied, then W&J has the head-to-head. But of course, if W&J loses and Case wins, then Case is in the field. And W&J is out, barring a lot of losses.
0: Also, if you're a Case Western Reserve fan, some of the things that we just spoke about in the past 10 minutes or so if a couple of those happen and you get one upset like a like a center losing or something like that, then all of a sudden the Case Western Reserve is on the board. I think the main thing they they want to have is that, that North Coast tie break so that either Wabash or Wittenberg, who are both currently in front of them in the North Region rankings, one of those teams gets pulled in as the automatic bid because Dennison has no shot as an at-large team. The only way Dennison gets in is as the North Coast champion.
1: So keep an eye on everything that happens this weekend. We will have it all over the website and on Twitter as well as things go on on Saturday. And I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently open for sponsorship. You could be reaching a very, very large audience here over the course of the next few weeks. And I think you know everything that the audience does. Uh, You know, this is a time if you want to reach fans, this is a great time. We will have a bunch of fans who are new, you know, who have not really listened to the podcast before because they are new to Division Three, or their team has never been in the playoffs before Claremont Mudscripts. scripts, so there's lots of possibilities to reach new people and football fans all over the place by sponsoring the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would wax poetic about your product or service right here in break. In fact, we'd do it much earlier in the podcast if it were a paid spot, believe me. So drop us a line at pat.coleman at d3sports.com because this is when people listen. I mean, people listen all the time, but now, lots and lots and lots of people listen. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast you're joined by Kevin Bullis, the head coach of the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater Warhawks, his team at 8-0 and heading into the regular season finale this week at UW-Platteville. Uh, first of all, Coach, uh, thanks for taking the time to join us
3: on the podcast this week. Hey, it's an honor being with you, Pat. I appreciate that.
1: If there was a thought that uh, you guys might be Uh, a little vulnerable or coming back to the pack after a a couple of close losses last year led you guys to finish seven and three. You guys have really kind of put that uh, aside here this year, roaring out to an unbeaten start and really not letting anybody do much of anything on offense against you.
3: Our defense is playing very well. I mean, and that is something that, you know, early on, I I go back to 2017 to with the growth of this group, um, you know, when they started their first game against Illinois Wesleyan in 2017, it's really the same defense. It's the same personnel, same players. They were an immature group, in particular, our front seven was very immature. Our immaturity showed really in our first four games of the season. The beautiful part of it is is that their growth and and that's something that we you know hold dearly to what we do with this football program. Um, going back all the way to through Coach Brezowitz's years. It is about growth and developing the players individually and collectively, and that group has grown um, every week. They have literally gotten better every day, which has culminated in being a better defense each week. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, 5.4 points a game, um, that's an amazing stat. That's still – I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that.
1: And it, it's a, it's allowed you guys to – I don't know if it's just uh, play conservative offense or maybe just get by with an offense that I don't know if the offense is less skilled necessarily, but you've been, I know you've been spreading the ball around to a lot of players. Is it a situation where you're still trying to get lots of guys playing time or find a combination of, say, receivers that works or you know, find a, you know, figure out who the go-to running back is?
3: Really, it's the balance of the offense. I'm terribly excited about where our offense is. I'm very excited. I know this from being a defensive guy and spending most of my career as a defensive coach. When you have an offensive scheme that has uh, versatility, several different targets that can get the ball, whether it's wide receivers, running backs or tight ends, that is the toughest offense to defend very seriously. It's easy when they got one receiver that's getting a lot of attention. It's easy when they got one ball carrier. Um, and that to me is the beautiful part of what Pete Jennings says, as our new offensive coordinator has brought is a balanced system that allows us to utilize all the talent. Um, we are not short of talent by any means, if anything, I feel we have a wealth of talent in particular, our wide re- receiver positions, in particular, our running back positions with uh, Alex Pete and Ronnie Ponick, um, carrying the load, but, uh, you know, Preston Strasburg, our third running back, has had a chance to really develop his game as well. So, I mean, um, if anything, we feel very confident. And I think that really gives um, credit to Cole Wilbur, our quarterback, who's a senior quarterback, doing a great job of reading the systems that Pete's installed and which allows us to have that balance and consistency each week. And, again, that makes it terribly tough on our opponents to defend our offense, and, uh, and you can really see it here in these last two games. Our offense is continuing to, it, like I talked about, our defense is continuing to improve and, and get that uh, balance to the run-pass game that is terribly exciting.
1: With the new offensive coordinator this year, how much of the how much of it is scheme change? You know, how much of it is just like terminology, and what did the players kind of have to absorb in order to get where you guys are this year?
3: There was a lot of carryover. I mean, we we traditionally been in a zone offensive scheme, which I mean, that's in a pro style offense. So I mean, from that aspect, there was a lot of carryover. I think the Pete Pete the what he brought was a soundness to system. A great teacher. He's an amazing teacher. When I hire coaches, I, I want to hire the best, obviously a knowledgeable football, very knowledgeable football mind, but more so a teacher, somebody that it's it's not what us coaches know. It's what the players know, and that that's the most important part. And I think that that is the piece that um, he's a great teacher, which really has allowed our offense to, to show that growth each week and and develop it and he keeps it simple not simple for our our opponents but simple for our players which allows them to play fast play physical and 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 play our game um in a very productive manner offensively
1: having been there as uh, an assistant coach when Whitewater was going through this run of uh, multiple years in the stag Bowl. where do you feel like this team fits in terms of I don't know if necessarily style but do you think that this is a team that is on par with some of those teams that have been deep in the playoffs
3: you know that's uh, that's a great question you know and it's funny um, our minds don't really work that way Um, they really don't Pat I mean in in all reality to sit here and compare us to the 2013 the 2014 or whatever team it may be um, I, I guess my mind has really not pondered that thought. We're so locked into the day-to-day. We're so locked into what, you know, today is, so it's Wednesday. What are we doing today to get better? And I know that sounds very, you know, cliche with what coaches say, but it is really how we look at the world. The the, the 2018 team has truly its own identity. And and I, the identity to me that they've really proven is one most importantly, they practice extremely well. I mean, I cannot tell you that we had a practice where I thought, boy, that was a bad day practicing. In fact, I know we haven't. Um, and that to me is the identity that this group has, I mean, other than playing the game fast and playing the game, physical and, and disciplined, um, they, they're to me, the identity of this team is its ability to practice and grind every dang day and stay locked in on trying to find uh, what do I have to get better at today. And then, and you've heard us talk about pound the rock. That's really ultimately our that's our mantra. But that is um, really they buy into that premise so well, and, and obviously the coaches are doing a very good job of making a point of emphasis to the players as well.
1: Well, when I hear you say that about uh, this being a team they practice as well, it rings in my head that uh, I think we've talked in the past in the previous couple of years that maybe there was a time in which you felt like you needed more leadership from your upperclassmen or from your seniors or maybe there was a, you know, a period of time where they didn't practice so well is that uh, am I making that up?
3: Well, I mean it's it's I think with each team it has its own identity and and our you know, in all reality, you, you look at, um, your juniors and seniors are your leaders and, and typically, um, you know, and so, I mean, the thing that to me, you know, our captains in particular, Harry Hensler, amazing leader, you know, and, and Bryce Lashinsky, shoot, it's a second time. He's a second time captain in my 30 years or 31 years of coaching. That's the only second time I've been around a two time captain. Um, You know, so they they are really the defensive leaders of that um, on the defensive side of the ball. And it's not something that just started on August 11th for them. That's something that started back last year in August in 2017. Mm -hmm. And to see them develop as leaders on the offensive side of the ball, um, Nate Truen and and Cole Wilbur have really been. The guys that have grabbed the bull by the horns with that group again, is there several others? Yeah. Mitch deaths, one of our wide receivers. He's a senior, um, to see his growth as a leader is fantastic. I wouldn't say our leadership's been poor in the past. It is always such a point of emphasis that we can always get better. Does that make sense, Pat? So I know when we talked in the past, it wasn't, um, that I thought we had poor leadership. It is, we can always get better there's no point of arrival with leadership or development that you say, okay, we've accomplished this. We're at the pinnacle of where we're at. That's a very fixed mindset. And that's a um, mindset that causes complacency. Sure. And so we always look at everything here as a, a growth mindset. What are we doing to get better today? I might be a returning All-American. I might be a two-time All-American, but I'm not good enough yet. And, and there is no point of arrival, and that's the same thing with leadership or playing your position as an offensive lineman or tight end. And so I know when we talked in the past, to me it's always something that we're pushing. What else can we do to be better leaders? What can we do to be better coaches? What can we do to be better offensive guard? Does that make sense?
1: Sure. No, I understand. I, uh, I appreciate you uh, going into that in depth. You guys have been blessed with uh, some great fan support, and you know, just last year we watched uh, St. John's and St. Thomas play in Target Field in front of 37,000 people. You guys always draw really well for a bunch of Wyoc home games, and then this week we just found out that uh, Ithaca and Cortland, the Cortica Jug game, will be played at MetLife Stadium next year, the home of the uh, NFL's Giants and Jets. So. If we were to take one of your home games and put it somewhere, where would we where would we draw the maximum? Would we put you guys against Oshkosh and Camp Randall at some point?
3: I, I tell you, I mean, you could surely do something like that. But I'll tell you this. I'm proud of our home, the Perkins stadium. Um, we have seventeen thousand in our home stadium, and we're terribly proud of that. And we're proud of the perk. I don't care to move it anywhere else, uh, to be quite candid with you. Yeah, they could, I guess, Miller Park or whatever um, to draw a crowd. I think it would be awesome. Um, But ultimately, if I had a part in the decision, I'd say let's stay in the perk and play the game.
1: Maybe it'll be one of Oshkosh's home games that we move then.
3: (laughs) There we go. I'm with you on that one. I'll take that. Pat,
0: I'm with him. Not every D3 rivalry game belongs (laughs) in a bigger venue. Sometimes on campus is already the perfect place. But I think Cortica explicitly going after Tommy Johnny is bold.
1: Yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that they set that as a goal. I think it's pretty audacious. I agree, not every game makes sense or belongs in a big stadium. But, you know, we have long talked about Cortica going to perhaps the Carrier Dome in Syracuse. So I don't think this is a, a stretch that Cortica might go somewhere else. You know, uh, just a sidebar for a second. I mean, Cortica is a game that has gotten far too big for its stadiums, right? They've had to limit tickets over the course of the last 15 years or so. Um, you know, the, the town of Cortland has had some issues with people after the games kind of overrunning things. So maybe it makes sense to give it a shot in a, uh, in a larger venue.
0: Yeah. And look, this, that was a watershed moment for, for St. John's and St. Thomas. And I think it, it works. It worked in that case. And, and those are two great campus venues as well. But I also think there are some that, that wouldn't quite work. You know, I don't think Randolph-Macon in Hampton, Sydney would be any better, at in Charlottesville, let's say, or at FedEx Field or something, it, it just wouldn't work as well as it works uh on campus. So I think some games there there might be some other possibilities to to try to do this in some other rivalry games, uh, but some of them I think on campus is the best spot.
1: I think I would just love to see Amherst and Williams at Fenway just for the kick the kick of it. See what that looks like.
0: And I tell you what, that's a great suggestion because Fenway only seats about thirty six thousand to begin with, so you're not. um you're not dealing with a lot of potential empty seats. You know, as far as uh, UW-Whitewater quote-unquote being back, I don't think you have to watch them very long to see traits similar to their stag bowl teams. Coach Bowles is right that each team has its own identity, and even if this particular team doesn't get back to a stag bowl, it won't mean that the Warhawks aren't back. They're going to be a problem, though, in the postseason, I think it's great that we're going into this 32-team field with more than just two teams on a collision course for Shenandoah.
1: This brings us up to our six games to watch segment, and we'll start this one in frigid Collegeville, Minnesota, where I will either see Thomas Moore end its run as a member of NCAA Division III football, or I'll see the Saints pull off an incredible upset when they take on the number four ranked Johnnies. Saints haven't yet shown signs of the road weariness that comes with having three home games and having traveled more than 7,500 miles to participate in Division III football this season. But this is their second trip to Minnesota this year, and St. John's is by far the toughest opponent on the schedule. Collegeville will be expecting a high in the low 20s and possible flurries on Saturday, but the way St. John's offense has been clicking, I don't expect that it will be enough to slow the Johnnies down. People will be watching this game, however. It has implications for the pool bid B, the pool. It has implications for the pool B bid to the playoffs as we've mentioned. Thomas Moore could all but secure that with a win, and it has implications for pool C, the at-large bids as well. If St. John's loses, it could very well drag down the winner of the game that follows. And for that game, let's send it out to Adam Turr. The Tommies haven't been
4: here before. A 29-game
1: Mayak win streak was snapped by rival St. John's in Week 7.
4: Now St. Thomas needs a win over its rival Bethel in the regular season finale in order to earn a playoff berth. For the seniors, this is uncharted territory. They have had the A berth wrapped up by Week 11 in each of their first three seasons. This year, Week 11 might as well be a playoff game. Both the Tommies and the Royals enter at 8-1. and one both with the loss to the Johnnies as their only blemish. The Tommies lost by 20 on the road, while the Royals lost by 18 at home. St. Thomas has the playoff pedigree and experience, while Bethel has finished 5-5 five five each of the past three years, last making the playoffs in 2013. Both teams are led by staunch defenses, and each unit has pitched four shutouts this season. Led by roommates, sophomore running back Sam Gibbous and freshman quarterback Jaron Rosty, the Royals have rushed for 234 yards per game. The Tommy's defense allows 11, yes, 11 rushing yards per game. St. Thomas has given up just two rushing scores on the season. The defenses are stellar against the run and also on third downs. Turnovers have been the bugaboo for the Tommies. Eight of the 11 interceptions thrown came in the loss to St. John's and in last week's one-point-come-from-behind win over Gustavus Adolphus. If Bethel forces turnovers, they'll have the edge. Similarly, the recipe for stopping the Royals is clear. Shut down the run game, as St. John's did, and Bethel struggles. Let them pile up over 200 yards, as they have done in seven of nine contests this season, and your defense will have a long day. The playoffs start early in this battle for second place in the MIAC and one of the five coveted Pool C berths. Pat and Keith, back to you. Baldwin-Wallace
0: is at number eight John Carroll on Saturday in what is essentially a Pool C play-in game, although the Blue Streaks have a stronger profile at 9-1 and one than the Yellow Jackets. These two OAC teams are a lot less similar than they appear at first glance. Baldwin-Wallace's past three wins have been by two, two, and seven against Wilmington, Marietta, and Ohio Northern. They allow 22 points per game. John Carroll has really only struggled against Mount Union and Marietta this season, and the defense has pitched three shutouts uh, and allowed just 121 yards to Heidelberg last week and just one offensive touchdown back in that clash against Mount Union, which, by the way, is scoring 54 points per game otherwise. John Carroll runs for 264 yards per game, one of the best totals from a non-triple option offense nationally. Baldwin Wallace, meanwhile, is the nation's best team on third down at 56%. Now, they're going to need to convert some of those against John Carroll because the Blue Streaks have a defense that can really tee off
2: and an offense that can control the ball. Now let's send it to Frank Rossi. From In the Huddle and D3Football.com, I'm Frank Rossi. The first game I'm reviewing this week is the N-Jack title game between Salisbury and Frostburg, the Regions Cup game. The stakes are easy to understand. If Frostburg wins, the Bobcats win the N-Jack, go to the playoffs, and eliminate Salisbury's playoff chances. If Salisbury wins, the Seagulls win the N-Jack, go to the playoffs, and force Frostburg to sweat out a potential Pool C bid. If injuries weren't an issue, this game would look excellent on paper as both teams struggled against Montclair, winning by one possession, and both played Wesley to a virtual tie. However, during overtime last week, Salisbury quarterback Jack Nowitzki was injured. I was told by sources at Salisbury that Nowitzki didn't leave Salisbury stadium on crutches last week, and he was intending to try to practice this week. Whether or not he starts against Frostburg remains questionable, however, and if he can't go, Jack Lanham or Frank Pippich Jr. might get the start. This isn't a good time to be facing Frostburg with uncertainty, though, as Bobcats have shaken their slow start tendencies over the past couple weeks, beating Southern Virginia and Kane by a combined score of 111-13. to Quarterback Connor Cox has been consistent this season with 25 touchdowns, including six on the ground, against just two interceptions. Defensively, the Bobcats have been terrific, posting 73 tackles for loss, including 33 sacks. That doesn't surprise many people to hear, but Salisbury's defense, surprisingly, isn't far off, with 67 tackles for loss, including 31 sacks. Undefeated, Frostburg comes into this game as a favorite, even if Jack Nowitzki gets the start for the Seagulls. However, it's the final time this rivalry game will likely be played, with Frostberg rising to Division II next season. That might give Salisbury more motivation to pull off the upset. Back to you for now, Pat and Keith. The American Rivers
1: Conference title and automatic bid will be on the line on Saturday as Warperd travels to face Dubuque. Dwayne Allen and Maurice Harrion continue to provide the one two punch in the backfield for Dubuque, with the two combining for 56 carries, 302 yards, and two touchdowns in last Saturday's win against Simpson. After missing the first two games of the season, Harrion has come along, and his last week's uh, carries, a uh, total of 26, represented his season high. Matt Seysha, on the other side, continues to have a great season at uh, quarterback for Wartburg, where he is number two in completion percentage and in passing efficiency in all of NCAA Division III. Dubuque is playing well, and the past 11 years could well. Be considered the heyday of Dubuque University football, with only two sub five hundred appearances over that span. But even though the Spartans have been to the playoffs twice in those eleven years, they've only beaten Wartburg once in that span.
0: Mammoth is at Saint Norbert with the MWC title on the line, and a Scots Green Knights title game comes as no shock to anyone. But even if you don't follow the conference, it's an intriguing matchup. Saint Norbert's only loss is on the road in overtime against the Wyak team, and against. MWC competition, it has four shutouts and another non-conference game in which it only allowed seven points. St. Norbert's defense is fourth nationally, but Monmouth is right there alongside. After the Scots opened with Wheaton and Wartburg splitting those games, it's allowed just 23 points over seven MWC games. So Monmouth might be the best team that St. Norbert has seen so far, but the reverse won't be true. Quarterback Drew Rhodes is both the Green Knights leading rusher and passer, while Hayden Nelson needs to figure out a way for the Scots to score. Sometimes when you expect a defensive battle, you get the opposite. But it was a 9-6 game last year, and I wouldn't be stunned to see another one.
1: So that's our six big games to watch. But in week 11, six games hardly cuts it. So we've got six more games for you, six rivalry games, which all have implications. And we'll start with the game or the game in which the Old Dominion Athletic Conference uh, rivals feature Randolph-Macon at Hampton-Sydney. The Yellow Jackets missed on a chance to wrap up the automatic bid in the ODAC last week, losing to Ferrum, while Hampton City turned this into a conference title match with a win at Washington and Lee. I'd list their respective records here, but I just have to throw them out because that's what you do in rivalry games. This is the 123rd matchup between these teams, dating back to 1893, making it the oldest small school rivalry in the South. Randolph-Macon has won the past four meetings, but the Tigers have a 60-51 to 51 advantage overall with 11 ties. Trey Frederick is still there at running back for the Yellow Jackets. The senior has averaged 139.3 yards per game on the ground, while Jordan Hall adds another 79 yards a game to give Pedro Ruzza a nice one-two punch in the backfield. Meanwhile, it is all through the air for the Tigers this season, as Alec Cobb has thrown for 2,975 yards, and the team averages just 80 yards rushing per game.
4: The Monon Bell game is always an emotional affair. The intensity of the rivalry game between Wabash and DePauw is heightened when one or both teams is playing for a share of the North Coast crown. The Little Giants are playing their best football of the season, defeating Wittenberg on the road to snap the Tigers' 21-game regular season winning streak, then trouncing Allegheny 54-17 at home. The offensive line is paving the way for running back Isaac Avant, who tallied 229 yards at 10.4 yards per carry and three touchdowns in last week's win. Avant opened the season as a backup and took over after Ike James went down with an injury after Week 2. He has now eclipsed 1,000 yards and rushed for 10 touchdowns on the season. Wabash enters Week 11 in a three-way tie atop the conference standings with Wittenberg and Denison. If the Big Red defeat Winless Canyon on Saturday, Denison will earn the NCAC's Pool A playoff berth, but Wabash will be squarely in the Pool C mix if the Little Giants finish 9-1. It has been an emotional season for Wabash since the September 10th, 10th death by suicide of senior captain and starting middle linebacker Evan Hansen. What could be the season finale will be an emotional struggle for many, especially Evan's senior teammates. Depaul enters the game at 4-5, losing four games by single digits. It has been an emotional season for the Tigers, too. Starting quarterback Matt Labus sustained what appeared to be a season-ending injury in Week 1. The senior returned in last week's win over Kenyon, tossing a touchdown pass in his home finale. The Garen Catholic grad will wear number 32 in his final game against his biggest rival in honor of his high school teammate and co-captain, Evan Hansen. It should be another Monon Bell classic at Wabash. Pat and Keith, back to you. Coast Guard is at Merchant Marine, and the Secretary's
0: Cup game is Division III's best pomp and circumstance and best atmosphere honoring those who serve. And sure, you throw the records out for rivalry games, but in this case, the teams are anything but trash. Coast Guard is 6-3, and, and Merchant Marine is a one-touchdown loss to MIT from being unbeaten. That 7-1 and one record, should it go to 8-1, and one, puts Merchant Marine squarely in the pool B picture. That's the one playoff spot set aside for teams that don't have access to an automatic bid. Merchant Marine hasn't held a team under 14 points, though, since a week one win against Misericordia, which is now 8-1 and one itself, but it does have the number 13 rush defense nationally to pair with its traditionally strong rush offense, which is ninth in the nation at 273 yards per game. Coast Guard would not only put an exclamation point on its best season since 2007 by beating its rival, but it would end the Merchant Marine playoff hopes as well. And now let's throw it out to Frank
2: for Ithaca at Cortland. Frank Rossi back again to preview Ithaca at Cortland. That's Cortica 2018. But as we prepare for this year's game, the announcement of Cortica 2019 being played at MetLife Stadium caught the attention of many, including alumni of the schools. Former Ithaca starting quarterback Dan Juvan saw me in New York City Thursday and asked me, hey, did you hear about next year's Cortica game? Of course I did, but I bring it up because a lot of people may have forgotten about how important this year's game is. The winner of Cortica may very well be the first Pool C at-large candidate on the table from the East Region. While both teams have two losses this season, their strength of schedule numbers are very good and they both lost to number three Brockport by less than seven points. The likelihood of the winner being selected to the NCAA playoffs would be extremely low, but winning Saturday would at least ensure the winning team a home bowl game, while the losing team might need to travel to their bowl game next week. Both teams have benefited from strong defensive performances this year. Cortland has given up under 18 points per game this season and less than 10 points per game in their last five games. Ithaca, though, has given up less than nine points per game as the Bombers lead the Liberty League in points allowed. The problem, though, for the Bombers is on offense, with inconsistent play from quarterback Wahid Nabi. Nobby's thrown just eight touchdowns this year against seven interceptions. The stats suggest that this will be a very low-scoring affair in Cortland on Saturday. That's been the general Cortica trend lately, with last year being the first time either team broke 30 points since 2008, as Ithaca broke Cortland's streak of seven wins in a row last year to win 48-20. The home team has won the last two games, but the East Regional Advisory Committee has visiting Ithaca Five spots ahead of Cortland in this week's regional rankings. Will the Red Dragons use this as motivation to take back the Cortica jug? We'll find out Saturday. Back to you, Mr. Cole McMillan. I was way too happy.
0: Williams is at Amherst, and if you haven't followed the NESCAC all year, the Mammoths started 7-0 and before a 27-16 loss to Trinity last Saturday. Williams, for its part, started 4-0, and but has lost 3 or 4 since. But two of the losses were only by one touchdown. The 133rd playing of the biggest little game in America, the most played rivalry in D3, and fourth most played in college football. It will end the season for both of these teams since the NESCAC does not participate in the playoffs, and that heightens the drama. Williams bounced back from bottoming out at 0-8 in 2016 to six wins last year, but to get to six again this season, they'll have to win at Amherst for the first time since 2010. The Eves are still young. Quarterback Bobby Maimaran is a sophomore, and they have just four senior starters to Amherst 13. And the Mammoths had their dream of an unbeaten season dash last week, but they feel pretty good riding in the offseason with a win over their arch rival, and they might even back into the NESCAC title if Trinity loses to its rival, Wesleyan.
1: The final stop on our rivalry tour takes us to the West Coast, specifically to Southern California. In fact, to a three-block stretch of Claremont, California, where Claremont-Mudscripts and Pomona-Pitzer not only have stadiums that close together, but their campuses overlap. The Battle of Sixth Street features a team which has clinched an automatic bid as Claremont will be headed to the D3 playoffs for the first time ever. Last year, Pomona-Pitzer won this game on the final play of regulation, catching a pass that bounced off a player's helmet and then scoring on a two-point conversion to win. The Stags will want to make sure that this game doesn't come down to a final play. And we come back around to on the spot for Week 11, and uh, Keith is going to put me on the spot right here.
0: All right, this, this has a little bit of an intro to it, so bear with, Pat. Going back to the heyday of uh, or the original days of, of D3Football.com when we first started doing this, and I believe Gordon Mann was your uh, your Saturday night sidekick for bracket projections. Probably true. One of the things one of the things I've I've kept track of over the years is how your Saturday bracket projection fares oh. on Sunday when the actual bracket comes out.
1: Oh god. So okay.
0: It, if we go back to 2001 – uh you and Gordon picked Menlo and Linfield to make it in pool B. That's how, old. that's how long we've been around. Menlo yeah. doesn't even have a D three football program anymore. Linfield was in pool B Uh the committee that year took Whitworth and Ithaca instead. And in pool C we chose uh, Wisconsin Eau Claire and the committee took Montclair state. Now we've had some years uh, that were much better than that one where uh we've projected all the correct teams. And uh, actually you guys did that. You and, uh, Greg, last year, projected all 32 teams correctly. Um, in 2016, Pat, Frank, and Greg, you guys put St. John Fisher in the field. The committee took UW-Platteville, and they played that epic first-round game at St. John's. So here's my question, and here's how I'm going to put you on the spot. How many teams will you project correctly on Saturday night, you and Greg? And if you miss, which team will you miss on? And which team will the the, uh, committee put in?
1: All right. Well, this will be interesting. Uh, You know, of course, uh, at this point, right, uh, 26 of them are given to us. So our our grades automatically look really good because we're going to start off with uh, 26 automatic bids. And we're going to start off with uh, probably three gimmies in Pool C. I suspect that this is a situation where we're going to have the toughest pool B decision that we've had in a while. Uh, It's all, it's possible that we might guess wrong there, but you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the strongest stance that I've taken so far in the course of this projection conversation is that Linfield is truly a two loss team. So if the committee decides that that's not the way they're going to treat them, that's I think the spot where we might mess, where we might miss or mess up.
0: Yeah. that makes sense because, um, they have a very strong strength of schedule and if you look at them as a, a one-loss team even though they don't have a, any uh, wins over originally ranked opponents which is where i begin to lose lose uh, you know i'd argue harder for them if they if they had a great non-conference win if they if they all the years they've played Harden Simmons and Mary Harden Baylor early in the season if they had one of those in their back pocket i think we'd be fighting for them to get in mm-hmm. um i just don't think they have that this year but the committee could certainly see it differently so uh, you're not going to go out and say you're going to project all 32 correctly. I uh, I like your honesty.
1: Yeah, I mean, in all, because we probably do that about a quarter of the time. So odds are that uh, we won't. The committee has its own opinion and it has access to more people than we do and more opinions. So I can, uh, I can see where the odds are against us.
0: And may the odds be ever in your
1: favor. Well, now it's your turn to put me on the spot. All right, so you put me on the spot about playoffs, and that's great because I'm planning to put you on the spot about rivalries. We have a a handful of rivalries and games that we haven't talked about in the course of this podcast, in the course of this rundown. We uh, talked about uh, six just now, of course. We talked about uh, Frostburg and Salisbury for the Regions Cup. I'm going to throw three rivalries at you, and I want you to just uh, spin 30 seconds on them and then pick a winner. Also, I'm not going to tell you the teams. I'm just going to tell you the rivalry name. Academic Bowl.
0: Oh, Academic Bowl is Carnegie Mellon and Case Western Reserve. All right. All right. Well, I think this is actually a, um, a obviously a huge game for, for a Case, which is going to be going into this game, trying to keep its playoff hopes alive. And um, if we remember, going back to last season, Case Western Reserve blocked a punt late in a game, and uh, in this game, mm-hmm. and it preserved their their playoff bid. And uh, basically, they were uh, they were out, they were done. And uh, the punt block was returned for a touchdown, ends up getting them into the postseason. Now this year, their their chances are pretty far a long shot. And Carnegie Mellon um, missed a game two weeks ago because of the uh, the Tree of Life shooting in pittsburgh and uh, it was so close to their campus that they just didn't play the game and um bounced they bounced back well last week if i recall correctly Uh, in uh in that game because that was my off the beaten path highlight they um gave westminster all they could handle westminster had to score in in the final minute to win that one 23 19. so carnegie mellon even though it's had a week off has been playing pretty well and uh and in case western reserve will have to will have to muster all of its uh, energy to not get too focused on the playoff picture, but just to beat its rival.
1: All right, next one is Dutchman Shoes. It's got to be
2: the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. shoes. You sure is not the shoes?
0: Well, good. I was hoping this one was in there because I was trying to think of what rivalries we didn't talk about, and uh, and this was it. RPI at Union. Uh, Union got off to a decent start this season, and we thought they were going to be a – pretty solid team and then when they got to uh Liberty League play uh not so great. They're 2 and 2 in the conference, 6 and 2 overall. They had a even and and that 6 and 2 is was not necessarily against scrub teams. They won at Coast Guard, which is a 6 win team. They won at Springfield, which has uh, uh has been a pretty good team this season. And they they've had some nice moments. They had one point loss at Hobart, which could have been a pretty big win for them. And then they've had some games where they just came out super Super flat, dominated by uh, by Ithaca twenty four zero. So uh, obviously RPI biggest challenge of the season, but it's also the uh, a, I'd say Dutchman choose top five, maybe six rivalry in D three. It, it's it's right up there. It's definitely one of the best trophies. It's it's got all the pomp and circumstance. And if you if you go way way back on uh, on D three boards. Uh, to the days of post patterns, yeah. uh, the the Liberty League and the the guys who played at at uh, Union in particular um, were really gave a good insight on on how big this rivalry was. I don't know, um, I don't know how competitive it will be, but I think it should be. Even though RPI has the uh, playoff spot in the bag already, I think the chance to go undefeated to win in front of your home crowd against your rival is, is big enough incentive and may even be bigger incentive than uh, than getting a playoff win.
1: Now we're getting a little more obscure with the Mercer County Cup.
0: Okay, Mercer County Cup is Grove City and Teal. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm thrilled. Can I just quit right there?
1: <laughs> well, you, you can uh, give us uh, less than 30 seconds if you like, sure.
0: Well, I'm I'm actually pretty thrilled that I that I knew the Mercer County Cup. Grove City started this season one and three, but they had Case Western Reserve and W and J in the first four games. And uh after taking it on the chin pretty badly against W and J sixty two ten, they've won five straight, the Wolverines have. And and actually a couple of nice wins in there. Uh three point win at home against Westminster. They won at Carnegie Mellon and uh and have have now got a chance to finish seven and three, which would be uh, their best record in, in quite a long time. Teal, on the other hand, zero and ten or zero and nine right now, staring at uh, down the barrel of zero and ten, have struggled to score the past couple of weeks. Just three, just two touchdowns in the past three games. So, in theory, uh, we you know this is one that that Grove City should handle pretty well. And and by the way. Uh, On our um, website, the records go back to '98, and even in the uh, just before '98 was when Grove City was really good. Like that was the RJ Bowers era. Uh, The best, their best record since then is uh, is six and four. So they have a chance to finish seven and three with a win against Teal.
1: Our final one here is the Mayor's Cup.
0: All right, well, you're gonna have to tell me what the mayor's cup is. I apologize for not. And I'm so proud of the Mercer County <laughs> Cup thing, but the mayor, I don't know.
1: That's all right. Well, I'll just tell you that the mayor is the mayor of Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania.
0: Oh, well, in that case, it's uh it's Kings and Wilkes. And Kings actually um it's kind of been a a fun team to follow this season. First of all, because we had uh we had Jeff Narr on the
1: uh, on the podcast. Was it before the season or was it very early in the season? It might have even been la- before last season, actually. Uh, the, and we've
0: uh, done so many pods this year <laughs> that they are actually starting to run together. And I hope uh, listeners uh, have enjoyed them and, and they haven't run to- run together for you guys as well. But Kings was actually 4-3 um, and three at, at one point in the season. And they ran into Misericordia and Delaware Valley the, the past couple of games. So... They're now four and five, but they've been a competitive team uh, against most everyone else, and they've uh, they've been they've been also up and down. And not not a lot of close games, not a lot of nail biters. Um, you know, they put the whooping on somebody one week, they take it on the chin the next week. So uh, at Wilkes is uh, is an interesting one, not just because you basically go across the street for the game, but Wilkes is five and four and kind of in a similar boat where. Um, They've been competitive. They put points up in, in certain games, but also against not, you know, had some weeks against not very good teams where they weren't very good. But Wilkes has played a ton of close games. Uh, they lost by four to Hartwick. They won by three at Lebanon Valley. They lost by two to Misericordia. They won by four against Albright, which is Literally the worst defense in the country. They're giving up like 54 points a game. So even even beating Albright 47-43, not that impressive. And then Wilkes is coming off a uh, a 14-7 win two weeks ago against Lacoming. and so they have a uh, had a, a bye week coming into this one. I actually, you know, to to clinch a winning season for Wilkes is actually a pretty big deal because this is that one time. A, uh, a playoff program, 11 win season back in 06 and they've been uh just two wins, two wins, three wins the past few years so this is, a, this is a pretty big and then 0 and 10 in, in 2017 so this is a pretty big deal for them. This is how long it's been since Wilkes was was uh good i I went to a playoff game it was Wilkes and Rowan it was at <laughs> Wilkes and I took my son in a baby carrier yeah. with me and uh, he's gonna turn fourteen next month,
1: I'm just saying. <laughs> I remember I, of course, didn't go to that game, but I remember that game. Uh, I remember you talking about that game, and that's also pre-podcast, but not by a lot. That was On The Spot. Now it's time for Spot Check, where we take uh, last week's On The Spot and uh, score ourselves. Last week, uh, Keith asked me to uh, take five games and put them in order by the uh, order of margin of victory. That turned out to be super difficult, so it didn't go very well for me. Let's see. I picked. Uh, I, I thought the closest game would be uh, Wilmington and Capital, and that game ended up being won by Capital by 21 points. I thought the uh, next closest would be Rowan at Montclair State, and Montclair State won that one by 14. That was the closest game of the f- of the of the five. Uh, I thought that. Uh, uh, that Hampton at SUNY Maritime would be the widest margin because that was a, a D1 FCS school against a, a D3, but it wasn't. That game was 44 points, but Thomas Moore beat winless Division II team Lake Erie by, uh, by 44 points, 44 nothing. And then uh, the, thing that I, the game that I thought was second would be uh, Merchant Marine over Catholic, and it ended up being third. Merchant Marine beat Catholic by 34. On the flip side, taking a look at uh, six games that Keith had to pick, Keith picked uh, Southern Virginia. Keith picked Merchant Marine. Keith picked Johns Hopkins. Keith picked Montclair State. Keith picked Bridgewater. And then Keith picked Co. Keith ran the table.
0: Yeah. Best on the spot ever.
1: And if uh, you, of course, you will get us uh, an opportunity to score next week's on the spot when we do this podcast next week. However many podcasts that is from now, that could be like seven podcasts away for all we know. Oh my goodness! The roulette wheel is spinning. It's reminding us that uh, we have a random game yet to pick if there are any games we haven't talked about out of the 123. This one is game number 13. And game number 13 is trying to Kalamazoo. It's a game we haven't talked about. Keith, it's a game we definitely would have talked about if, uh, if Kalamazoo had uh, won one of the games over the course of the last couple of weeks. Of course, our goal is to also try to pick a trophy for these teams to play for Uh, i know that kalamazoo and hope play for wooden shoes so that is out but that's a great trophy for western michigan i don't have uh, a great thought off the top of my head here between the hornets and the thunder but otherwise it looks like this is a game in which trying if they think they might get an opportunity perhaps to rest lamar carswell a little bit going into the playoffs they would uh, certainly want to do that but uh, Kalamazoo is uh, going to be in a position where they want to put up a fight because they're having the best season they've had in five ever.
0: Yeah, well, the thing about this game is that it looked like it was going to be for, I hate to say all the marbles, but that's the cliche that's coming to my head. It was uh, back on um, you know, the middle third week of October. Kalamazoo was 7-0. and trying was unbeaten. Brian Lester wrote the feature about uh, Kalamazoo. And it was the perfectly timed feature because Kalamazoo turned around and lost at all of it, lost at Hope, thirty-three-seven uh, this past week, and uh, now they're seven and two, and and yeah, they're just trying to finish strong against the toughest opponent on their schedule. And it's still even if they finish seven and three, Pat, as you mentioned, it'll be their best season by far um, in years. They had a six-win season in twenty thirteen, and and the previous winning season. Before that was 2003, when they also won six games. So, it's been a long time since they won seven. And uh, and even if they don't beat Trine, which we don't expect, um, it'll still be a pretty great season for for Jamie Zorbo's team. What I do find interesting is this situation that Trine is in. You mentioned uh, potentially um, resting someone. Saint John's is in the same situation where they they've got a pretty tough opponent coming to town. How? hard do they go with players who are battling injuries Uh, you know if they get up early do they start taking people out because they don't know who their playoff opponent is nor will trine when it plays Kalamazoo on Saturday but you want to be at full strength when you when you go into the postseason
1: before we get out of here we have to take a stock of last week's quick hits and of course quick hits is our weekly friday look at the upcoming set of games with six people giving answers to six questions in an attempt to give you 36 opinions some of which might be useful and we have to start off with the game of the week where five of us, including our guest, Sean Green of WDEL Radio, picked 10th-ranked North Central at 13th-ranked Illinois Wesleyan. Certainly was a game with impact, but the best pick of the bunch was the only outlier as Frank Rossi selected Cortland at number 3 Brockport, the game you heard in preview on this podcast last week. That resulted in a narrow Brockport win, four interceptions by Rashad Baker, a game ball for me, and it was a great game if any of you were able to actually watch it. People loaded up on number 18, Salisbury, as the top 25 team most likely to be upset. And Adam Sean Green, and I were all correct in that call. Once we made people pick a non-purple team to win an automatic bid, the job got a little bit harder, as only half of the panel got that right. I took Brockport, Frank got Husson, and Sean picked up Claremont Mud Scripps. But Randolph-Macon and Eureka will be waiting for week 11 if they get an AQ at all. The correct answer for who will be tied for first in the ARC at the end of Saturday was Warburg and Dubuque, of course, and Ryan Tips, Adam, and Sean each got that one right. And when looking for a team going into a rivalry game on a down note, everyone got one other than Adam, who picked Hanover. Hanover did get past Rose Holman last week before this week's game against Franklin. By the way, Last week's Quick Hits should have been sponsored by Sennheiser. I love those headsets. I'm wearing a Sennheiser uh, headset right now, actually, unsolicited plug. Frank, Sean, and I are all wearing them in the headshots in Quick Hits. I think I'm just going to send those guys an invoice for $100 and see if they pay it.
4: Wait, just because this is a pledge break, don't fast-forward that DVR.
1: Meanwhile, you can see this week's Quick Hits on the website by about noon on Friday. All right, last thing we got. We got uh, six games here, pick six. Keith picks a winner. We'll start off with Grinnell at Beloit. Give me Grinnell. All right. Bold move out of the uh, out of the gate. Uh Buff state at St. John Fisher.
0: Both those teams uh a little bit disappointing this year. I'll say St. John Fisher.
1: Uh Bowden at Colby.
0: Oh boy. It requires me to know my NESCAC main teams. Uh Bowden.
1: Uh Lycoming at Misericordia.
0: Oh, that would be super disappointing if this great season by Misericordia ends with Widener upsetting Delaware Valley, but then Lyco also beating Misericordia. I feel like Misericordia in some way is almost too good to be true, and they may they would stumble at some point against a very good MAC team, but I don't I can't bring myself to pick against them at this point, so I think there's a chance that that Lyco
1: wins. But I'll, but I'll
0: stick with Misericordia.
1: Maine Maritime at Catholic. Got to
0: go Maine Maritime.
1: <sighs> ah, that's brutal, man. Catholic has not been 0-10 Oh gosh, since 2004. It's more recent than I remembered. Uh, and then Salve Regina at Endicott.
0: That's going to be a good one and uh, has some playoff implications uh, that I don't even fully grasp anymore because it's been so long <laughs> since we've been sorting that out. Yeah. Um, Salve.
1: Why not? And those games, of course, take place on Saturday. You can follow all of them on D3Football.com. And this was D3Football.com, Around the Nation podcast number 222, released on November 9th, 2018. Thanks for listening. And, of course, keep an eye on all of the coverage this weekend. I'm not going to sleep a lot. I'd really love if you, uh, you know, then by uh, watching the website, made it worth my while. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or if you think of it as iTunes, then rate it in iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or by posting a a piece of paper on the the front door of your dorm room. That would be great. That will help other football fans find it. Actually, I think that last one will work. Uh, You can also leave comments for us on the blog page. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos. You can find him at DJMentos.com. Thanks to our correspondents, Adam Turr and Frank Rossi. Frank Rossi and Adam Turr, plus guests Kevin Bullis and sports information director Chris Lindecki for their time on this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Heath McMillan. Sounded like I said Heath there, but I really know his name is Keith. And coaches, fans... Thank Your Sports Information Director. This is one of the worst times of the year for an SID, and perhaps not coincidentally, it's Thank Your SID Week. So, coaches, your season will end here in a week or two or five or six, but the SID season doesn't end until May 15th. And no matter how many full-time assistants you have, Division Three head coach, I can pretty much guarantee in Division Three your SID has fewer full-time assistants. So do them a solid, buy them lunch, or at least don't make them hassle the opposing SID over a two-deep on a Monday morning. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? You can join the conversation by registering a post with a legitimate email address at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. Hey, D3 Boards, by the way, if you're looking to get in quickly, and, you know, bypass some of the uh, the security checks, register with a .edu email address. There's never a spammer that uses a .edu. If you register with a .edu, we will get you expedited as quickly as possible.
0: I actually get called Heath uh, at Chick-fil-A. Do you? For some, for some reason, they can never understand my name through the um, drive through and I say it, like, super deliberately now to the point where it cracks my daughter up. That uh, they like, she just anticipates like, what are they gonna call you next? I've been called um, Heath, Pete, Christian, or something like that, or Kevin. Uh, something not even all that close sounding to Keith. But yeah, they, yeah. I, I, do I look like a Heath to you?
1: You could look like a Heath, but again, you're just talking through a, a drive-through squat box, so who knows?
0: I feel like it, sh- it shouldn't be that. You know, Keith. like Keith is way more popular than Heath, though. Like your default should be. Pete, okay, maybe, but whatever.
1: Imagine if you went to Starbucks on a regular basis with uh, what might end up on your cup.
0: I forgot they do that. That's how infrequently I go there. Kind of hard to mess up Pat, though,
1: isn't it? I mean, you would think so, but I usually go by Patrick in a lot of those situations because Pat sounds like Matt, sounds like Matt. if people call people Nat anymore. Sounds like Cat. Like at a, uh, a job that uh, I had a little while back, uh, I went in expecting or hoping people would call me Pat, and I found out that there were two Mats on the team and there was a cat. And I thought, you know what? If we're going to shout uh, people's names across the cube farm, then I really want that second syllable so I know who the heck they're talking to.
0: At one point in the post-sports department, there were seven Mats, And both, both the bosses and several other dudes named Matt. And then a bunch of Marks, Mikes, and uh, pretty much every M name you could think of.
1: That doesn't sound super diverse.
0: Uh, I guess, I guess. I guess when you bring it up, although we, we, did, have a, uh, we did have a lot of women. We can say that. They weren't, they weren't named Matt, though.
1: Yeah, nobody there was named Ophabia Quist-Arcton.
0: Oh, is that a real one or is that a Key and Peel name? Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.